What is Crackalackin' Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Damp Valley coming at you with Noah Magaro-George. Thank you so much for hopping on to talk some San Antonio Spurs with this podcast. This podcast specifically, I told you before we started recording, is endlessly fascinated with the Spurs after the DeJounte Murray trade, which I said was out of character, but it's like, all right, they signed and traded DeMar DeRozan last offseason. They traded Derek White at the trade deadline. Maybe it's time to start reevaluating the character of this franchise. <laughs> However, before we belly flop into all things Spurs, the most important question, Noah, how are you doing? I'm great. I'm really excited. I'm getting prepared to go to summer league soon. So always enjoy being in Vegas. So just great. Honestly, really, really great. I hope you're doing well too. I'm spectacular over here. And the one as someone who is whose employer wants them to go to summer league and I constantly refused, <laughs> um, I encourage you to overreact to summer league. I think it's funny when people get mad um, when people are excited about summer league, like the Chet Holmgren stuff on Tuesday night or whatever that was. Um, overreact. Chet Holmgren is going to be the best basketball player in NBA history. He's going to be Giannis <laughs> and Pat and Dirk and KD all rolled into one. I don't care what happened on Wednesday night. Um, but thank you so much for hopping on before you go to summer league and with regard to the spurs we have to start here and that's with are you still upset that they moved drew you no sorry is <laughs> the dejounte murray trade like what were your thoughts about it now that you've had time to sort of ruminate on it and what do you think it says about their their overarching direction now I think it was the right decision for the san antonio spurs they were a team that if dejounte murray's your best player and you didn't really have an avenue to get another superstar anytime soon, you're not good enough to probably make the playoffs, or even if you made the playoffs, make a deep run, but you're also not bad enough to just outright tank and get a top five pick without a ton of luck. So I think when you're looking at DeJounte Murray, he's a guy who, yeah, he's only going to be 26 years old. He just came off of his first all-star appearance, but did you really want to pay him in 2024 a potentially five-year, $215 million max contract? And for me, the answer is no. And I think apparently the answer was no for the Spurs too. And for me, looking at it from what they did, I think they're ready for a rebuild. I mean, they like you said, they moved on from Derek White. They moved on from DeJounte Murray. They moved on from DeMar DeRozan, LaMarcus Aldridge. I mean, all these guys who were pillars of this team for the last couple of years. And now they're left with a team that right now is only an average age of about 23.2 years old. So it seems like a rebuild is on the way. And that's just barring any other trades or moves, but that's very young for the Spurs who were consistently the elder statesmen of the league. Do you think that like the Derek White trade, just because it happened in the middle of the season, portended any of this? Or do you think this was very much a, you know, DeJounte Murray became extension eligible this summer. They're probably trying to get a feel if he'd be open to one. And once he, I'm assuming, says no, which for him, you absolutely say no, just because based on the raise they could have given him, if he hit the open market today, he would probably get a max. Well, there's very little cap space around the league, but if he hit the open market this summer, even with limited cap space, he probably would have had a max offer on the table. Do you think it was like sort of that type of situation, or do you think that they were really kind of contemplating this right around when they made that Derek White trade? Yeah, the Derek White trade is super interesting. When I'm looking at the Derek White trade, I feel like the Spurs – had a goal of making the playoffs, like regardless if they were going to make it, they were fighting for the plan, they wanted to get in the playoffs. Derek White probably could have helped them a little bit, but he also was the second option next to DeJounte Murray as a guy who also is pretty streaky from three, wasn't necessarily the biggest or best compliment next to DJ. 
felt like it was right to move him. You know, he, peak of his value, get some draft picks back. You get Josh Richardson back, who's sort of a better fit off the bench or maybe even as a starter. So I felt like when they moved him, it was sort of to see like, hey, what does Lonnie Walker have? What does Josh Primo have to offer? And, you know, depending on what they show us, that might determine which direction we go this offseason. I felt like, you look, the Spurs missed a plan. Lonnie Walker became expendable. Josh Primo looked okay in spurts. I think they just looked at that and they said, hey, it's time for a rebuild. I don't think that we can build around DeJounte while giving him that big contract number that we talked about a second ago. So maybe it was a little bit of a precursor, but it did feel like at the, in the moment, it felt like they were still trying to compete for something, even if that something was just the play-in game. And I think what probably wasn't talked enough at the time of that trade, and we weren't that far removed from it, they used to go, seemed like, out of their way before last season to not play Derek White and DeJounte Murray together. And so <laughs> that's why I looked at it and was just like, yeah, maybe this isn't that. And I also thought that the perception of Josh Richardson veered too far away from reality. I was like, I thought he was good with the Celtics last year. I thought he was fine for the Spurs. But if you say Josh Richardson is good, um, I feel like Celtics and Sixers fans get like really pissed off about that. <laughs> I like Josh Richardson a lot, to be honest with you. I think I, I think... would right now give up a first-round pick for Josh Richardson. Not like a super high one, but if you were a contender and the Spurs are tearing it down, like, yeah, give me, give me Josh Richardson. If I don't need him to do off-the-dribble stuff, he showed some of that in Miami, clearly – that must have been like the Miami sauce where you don't want to you know, necessarily rely on players <laughs> the same way the Heat do. Um, but yeah, is there – the thing that I'm actually – this is the question I was dying, and it's it's nice that I can naturally put it at the top because it's related. I just – does this trade say have any implications for Pop? Because his few, even right now, like he could retire while we're recording this podcast, and I don't think anyone would technically <laughs> be surprised, even if it was a little shocking. But like I think – Last season specifically, when you listen to him and watch him on the sidelines, he seemed, it felt like he was reinvigorated and maybe really appreciates like this opportunity to coach like the youth movement. At the same time, now you've kind of just completely deviated from even chasing the play in birth. <laughs> is this just like Pop is totally okay with it? He'll leave when he leaves anyway, which could be after next season. Or is there maybe, and maybe I'm just reading or really don't ever want him to leave, could he be around just a little bit longer than we expected because he just wants to see this through to like, if not the end, like maybe the more middle stages of what, again, clearly just looks like a full-scale rebuild at this moment. Yeah, I think Pop's going to be here for a few more years, and I think you're absolutely right that he felt reinvigorated. That's something that he talked about in press conferences from the beginning of the season to the middle of the season to the end of the season, that he really enjoys being able to coach up these young guys in a way that, wasn't really available for him when he had David Robinson or Sean Elliott and Duncan, Manu, Tony, like competing year in and year out for titles. Of course, those guys need coaching, but in a very different way than guys who are learning how to play basketball at the professional level, like a Malachi Branham or a Josh Primo or even a DeJounte Murray. And I think the most interesting thing from all of this was Mike Finger from the San Antonio Express News said that it was confirmed to him that Popovich gave this blessing for the DeJounte Murray trade and that he's completely on board for coaching a bunch of young guys this year. And so for me, if he's on board coaching the young guys and he spoke really highly and really just with a, a different demeanor than we've seen in the last couple of years, it feels like he's going to be around for maybe a couple more years. But I would be a little bit surprised if he called it quits this summer. I really would. I I feel like I'd be heartbroken, uh, basically. And like <laughs> that was the one, my reaction to the Jante Murray trade was like, I think this is good for the Spurs' future. Just, I didn't, you had to be, I'm assuming, shocked at how many first round picks they were able to get out of the Hawks in that deal, right? 
Yeah. Oh my. Yeah. Uh, two unprotected, a uh, lottery protected, a pick swap. Like, yeah, they got a lot for Dejounte Murray. I know that they were. That I think Jake Fisher said that they were looking for something like a Drew Holiday package, and they kind of got that. So I, I would be happy if I'm a Spurs fan. Yeah, and that was my one like lamentation was, oh, if this is going to be Pop's last season, it would have been cool to see him coach for something. But if he's going to be around, and I had not seen that, like people thought, um, that's how I guess out of touch I am with that sentiment that he was going to be around a little bit longer. That actually makes me, if moving to Shante Murray is what it take to get pop for another two to three years, instead of just <laughs> one, I'm, I'm all for it. Our, and I'm worried about even asking this question in this way. I the Spurs clearly aren't done this off season, but do you expect any other like biggish moves in the sense of, would you predict any of the veterans like a Pirtle or a Richardson or McBuckets is on the move? Do you expect them to maybe attach themselves to the Kevin Durant trade that could happen at, any moment where they're taking on salary that some team doesn't want. I actually think that that's the perfect way for them to go. You know, that they could be that third party in a blockbuster trade for Kevin Durant or, you know, Kyrie Irving, and maybe they absorb somebody, Russell Westbrook from the Lakers, or they absorb something else from the Phoenix Suns. Who knows? But I think that's the way to go as long as they can get some sort of draft draft compensation for, for, for doing that, and in regards to like Jakob Pertl and Doug McDermott and even Josh Richardson, I think out of those three guys, probably Doug McDermott is who makes the most sense to move off from quickly. You know, he, he doesn't really make a lot of sense for this team. I think he provides the playmakers with a lot of off-ball shooting, some gravity there, but really he's 30 years old. He's not a very good defender, graded out as one of the worst defenders in the league last year. I think the Spurs are trying to build a different identity, and he feels like kind of the odd man out. And if you could move him to, you know, let's say Brooklyn, and, and you end up getting a pick in some blockbuster trade for Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving, something like that, not that they would be going to the Spurs, but the, third, the Spurs would be the third party, I think that makes a lot of sense because you do have him on the payroll for, I think, another two or three years. So it would be the best for them to move off of him. And I also think they like to do right by their players and doing right by, you know, Doug McDermott would not be keeping him here for a rebuild. I mean, he, he's basically useless for a rebuild and love him. I think he's a good player, but he's kind of useless for a rebuild. I will say doing right by Doug McDermott involves giving him a contract that pays him $13.8 million. I didn't think <laughs> anyone was going to match that. Uh, I Would you think that they are going to try and save a good chunk of, if not most of the salary cap flexibility they have right now for it's so much harder for teams to dump salaries midseason at the trade deadline, or even look at the draft, like what, um, it, what would it cost to get off of contracts around there? Do you see that being a scenario or a priority for them, especially given how they sort of have operated in the transaction game of, okay, like we just talked about it, the DeMar DeRozan sign and trade, the Derek white, like they're no longer opposed to making these, these like bigger type of moves. Yeah, I think so. Again, like I, for them, talent acquisition is the name of the game. They're probably not going to get a superstar. I know some Spurs fans still want them to go chase for a guy like Deandre Aiden because they think, okay, well you have the cap space, but does it make sense? Yeah. Probably, probably not for them. I mean, it, it, if you want to add him as a guy, who's probably not much of a self creator, mostly a play finisher, and you think he has some long-term upside when you can get the superstar that you're looking for, sure. But yeah, I, th I think along the lines of what you're saying, just sort of be that that team that's looking to make you know moves as a third party and just get as much draft compensation, young players as you can. So that's what I expect from the Spurs. We'll see what they do. I think they still have, I don't have the exact amount on the top of my head, but like $39 million in cap space right now, depending on the Danilo Gallinari 
guarantee. So we'll see what happens there, but that's what I expect from the Spurs. Yeah, I have them at, I think like, and this might be the low end at 32, just thinking like 11 million for, for Gallo because they readjust his guarantee. But that's just, they keep 20. Like that, I mean, just look at what OKC did and they ended up not using it at the trade deadline, but like they used it closer to the draft. That becomes a commodity in itself. The the last sort of piece to this, will they make a move puzzle? Where does Keldon Johnson fit in to all this? <laughs> and this is not me saying I don't think Keldon Johnson is good. I actually thought he did. Like his first two seasons, it kind of felt like he needed to be the, the center of attention on offense, so to speak. And he just felt a lot more complimentary this season and more well-rounded on offense to me. But he's extension eligible. You didn't want to pay Murray. You're entering this rebuild. Is that like someone whose future could technically be, I don't even want to say in doubt, but up for debate? Or is this very much, look, he's young. He'll enter restricted free agency if they don't sign him to an extension. We're just going to roll with him moving forward. I think it's probably the latter, right? He's only 23 years old, or he'll he'll be 23 years old by the time the season gets going. And he feels like a guy, like you mentioned, really more complimentary, got really good as a standstill shooter off the ball, was a guy who was a pretty good cutter, good uh, straight-line driver. He even, you know, at the beginning of the season where he had like the blinders on on every drive and it felt like every decision was predetermined, he got a little bit better throughout the season, was making some kickouts to perimeter shooters, making little dump-off passes to people in the dunker spot. So I like his developmental track. I know some Spurs fans, and that's fair. You know, fans are allowed to be irrational sometimes, but I think some people think that he's going to be, you know, the next face of the franchise because now Jean Murray's gone. But when I'm looking at money for him, I think if you look at what Michael Bridges got from the Suns, I think you should be looking about somewhere around there. I just don't think he's a max contract guy. I don't think he's a guy who you pay more than that because I do think at the end of the day, he's mostly a complimentary player. He's not much of a self-creator, or at least when he is, he's not very efficient in that role. So we'll see what this season holds for him because I think he will be the featured option. We'll see how that goes, but I think he'll be here for the rebuild. I mean, who knows? I mean, I thought DeJounte Murray might be here for the rebuild, even if it made sense to move off from him. So can't guarantee anything, but it feels like he's a guy who's going to be here for the long haul. And you very rarely see like players who are worth a damn on rookie scale contracts just get moved before they're before they sign their second deal. And I think a lot of people will get sticker shock if they extend him or re-sign him in restricted free agency with the cap rising. It's just a lot different. That being said, uh, I would totally try and extend him because I wouldn't want him getting into restricted free agency. We didn't see people inflate offer sheets this year. I think the cap is projected to jump by like 10 million next year. I'd be terrified of that. And if you didn't want to give DeJounte Murray max money two years from now, whatever it was, you don't want to give, you definitely don't want to give Kellen Johnson that type of money. Maybe he, maybe if there's like more directionality to his self creation, like you mentioned, his straight line drives, if there's like more like directionality to that stuff that he's doing and he's a little bit, less predictable that's still that becomes a much more valuable player but that's the and i hate talking about players in terms of their number but when you're beginning the rebuild and if you can't extend him you do have to sort of project forward and think like if he hits the restricted free agent market are we prepared to match an offer that's just going to be like that everyone thought deandre ayton was going to get and still hasn't gotten at this moment yeah that's that's a that's a really good question to ask that's something the spurs are going to have to consider and like personally again like I don't know if I see top 50, top 25 player for Keldon Johnson. He is a little stiff off the dribble, as we mentioned, mostly a straight line driver. And I know that he kind of has this reputation as a bruiser. You know, he's going to will his way to the rim. But, you know, since he entered the league, he's been below average at the rim, finishing in the half court every single season. Like, I don't think he has a ton of touch. His floater doesn't have a ton of touch. 
in the mid range. You look at his pull up numbers below 40%, actually below 35% from there. So I don't know if I see that. And just to add something in there from three point range last year, he took fewer than 15 pull up threes. Like, I just don't see him like that. Like, he's not a guy who's running off screens, who's really relocating that well off ball. He's mostly a stationary shooter, straight line driver, cutter, you know, thread and transition. I just don't know if he has that next gear to get to where we're talking about him as an all-star. So for the Spurs, there's a lot to consider. Maybe he makes the jump. Personally, I I don't really think he's going to. Even if the numbers go up, I Mm -hmm. think that's going to be more indicative of higher usage, more touches, more shots, more minutes. Like, We'll see what happens with him. He is fascinating. He's already exceeded expectations as a 29th overall pick, but the Spurs have a lot of questions to answer. And luckily, they're going to have all season to sort of answer those questions when it comes to Keldon. I think that helps too. It's just like they have the flexibility to kind of plumb the depth of what his offensive skill set might be. And if it looks terribly, like, you know, even better for their draft lottery odds at that point then. But you at least have the <laughs> flexibility to uh, to try it. The spur that I actually am highest on long term, and I think nationally he's viewed as more of an like accessory to a really good team. I'm in love with Devin Vassell. <laughs> and they gave him more ball screens after the Derek White trade last year. Uh, his in-between game really came along. Uh, particularly at the beginning of the season. I love what he can do on defense. And he is someone that you can count on to make like to make plays off the ball on offense as well. What is like, what do you think internally is the view of him? Or what is your view of him? Do you view him as like a potential? No, not the number one option cornerstone, but maybe like, Oh, this is the most important player on the roster right now moving forward. Or is that somehow Keldon Johnson or Jeremy? So what is just the view for you of, of Devin Vassell? I really like Devin Vassell. I think I do view him as more complimentary, kind of a guy who can be your third or fourth best player on a championship team. I just don't see a lot of on-ball equity or self-creation there. Not super shifty. One thing that I do really like from him is he is a threat off ball. You know, he can relocate. He can shoot off movement. He can shoot coming off screens. Really good spot shooter. Really good from the corners. And another thing that he's gotten really good at is just allowing guys to attack, you know, he can attack those closeouts when guys are a little over aggressive, one, two dribble pull up. He has this move that I don't know if I see it too often around the league. It's sort of like a step back slash spin move that he really likes to go to going to his left. He's knocked that down pretty consistently. And he's a good finisher at the rim when he's able to get, I guess like mostly an open lane as you should be if you, you know, if you have an open lane to the basket, but I just don't see that he has a lot of on ball equity. Didn't get a lot of pick and roll possessions. Not a guy who really, playmaked for others so we'll see where his value is but I think defensively he could be a guy who could compete for all defense teams for years to come I think he's one of the most intelligent off-ball defenders in his draft class in the NBA and I think he made some strides as an on-ball defender last year too he added some muscle he was able to take contact a little bit better he's not a guy who fouls very often so really love him as both an event creator and also as a guy who just is really fundamentally sound, making good rotations, you know, stunning near the nail, digging near the nail. I just really love Devin Vassell. That said, is he the most important part of the team? Probably not, but I think he's one of those guys that just fits regardless of the team makeup, right? He's just someone you can envision contributing to a contending team. Now, the Spurs aren't there, but he just fits with anyone. And that's why I love him, because he's such a seamless fit anywhere he goes. Yeah, that infinite scalability is important. And so is that just, I think most people be like, the most important player on the Spurs is next year's first round pick. But is that Jeremy Sowen now? Is that just like because there's the unknownness there? And I guess this leads me to my larger question of, since drafting Tim Duncan, and it's been in part because they've just been so good, the Spurs have kind of like brought their rookies along 
very gradually, even with Kawhi. That's how it worked out. Are they like, are, is that going to be different this year because of the direction that they're headed in? When you look at the three first round prospects specifically that they added in Wesley Branham and uh, Sowen. I would sure hope so. I, I don't I don't want the Spurs to enter this rebuilding process going, okay, you have to earn your minutes over Keita Bates Diop or earn your minutes over <laughs> Gorgie Jang or earn your minutes over, you know, Doug McDermott. Like those guys definitely deserve to play a little bit. But in regards to Sohan, I think he should be playing from day one. You could make an argument that he should start from day one, but if you don't want to put that pressure on, let Doug start. I know the Doug and Kildon thing didn't work, and that's great for your lottery odds. If you want to continue to do that for a little bit, Go for it. But I think Sohan should be starting by the All-Star break. I think Malachi Branham is polished enough on offense to be a guy who can be a threat as a scorer off the bench, maybe a secondary ball handler off the bench. And then, man, Wesley is the guy who I think probably the least polished, more tools than skills right now. I would love to see him be thrown into Austin sort of in that primo role, the same role that we got to see Lucas Shamanich in. We got to see DeJounte Murray and Lonnie Walker in. Just let him be the primary option. Give him all those on-ball reps, touches, shots, pick-and-roll reps. Like, just let him get comfortable. Let him experiment. Let him explore without consequence. And then maybe if he starts showing you something like Josh Primo did, move him on, move him on up. But I think at least for two of those guys, Branham and Sohan, they should be playing from day one. I just don't think there's an excuse not to play them, especially if you're rebuilding. What is, and I, it seems like you've given this actual thought, uh, and it's, it's so soon after the draft still, and we haven't gone through um, the, the, the meat and potatoes of Summer League. What's most appealing to you about Soen, his fit on this team, or the type of role that you think he can play, both next season, but even projecting ahead? I think it's just his versatility and switchability as a guy who can, I mean, feasibly switch one through five. I know a lot's made of that, and that's maybe not fair. I think you're more reasonably looking at, you know, he can guard two, three, four, small ball fives in a pinch. And if you need him to switch out on a point guard or a smaller player, he can probably do that. But I just think having watched so many of his games at Baylor, he was, I think you could argue, you know, one of the anchors for one of the best defenses in college basketball for the fourth best team, or at least that's where they finished in the AP poll as an 18 year old, you know, really good communicator, made timely rotations, could switch onto every position at the college level. Didn't make a lot of mistakes. He was a little foul happy at times. And I think sometimes he closed out a little bit too upright. But just his scalability as a defender going forward, I absolutely love that. And then also just his ability to potentially be maybe not like your primary playmaking hub, but a guy who can run a little bit of pick and roll, who's going to be a good short roll passer, who's someone who can run off of DHOs or maybe stay elbows as like a pseudo playmaking hub. Like I really like that from him. I don't know how much of that we're going to get to see, but I think we're going to get to see a lot more of it now that DeJounte Murray is gone because there really just aren't very many playmakers or proven playmakers on this roster. So I expect to let them, or I expect the Spurs to let him experiment at least a little bit with his playmaking because I think he has pretty good processing for a guy who's, you know, 6'10", 19 years old. I like what I've seen from him. I could sort of on defense see him becoming like, what if... Jonathan Isaac didn't have dynamite in his body. Like he looked like a less <laughs> explosive, his versatility there. And it feels like to me, he could be the best defensive, like almost a system to himself. And, he, and Jonathan Isaac is a terrible comparison on offense because someone seems like he just has a lot more ball skills and his ceiling is so much higher there. Um, love his haircut as well, by the way, reminiscent <laughs> of, it made me think of that pop moment with George Hill, where he was making fun of George Hill's hair. I was like, what pop can react with that hair? Uh, Malachi Branham though, is that someone who's going to drive Popovich just like crazy? 
That's interesting because I feel like the last couple of years, especially young players have not really gotten under his, his skin as much. Like when Lonnie Walker first got to San Antonio and he was getting spot minutes here or there, Pop was in his ear. Same thing with DeJounte Derek. Like he was in their ear. He was yelling at them. He was chewing them out if they made mistakes and you're out of the game. I didn't really see so much of that last season. Like he kind of let mistakes go, turnovers go. Now I'm not saying he's have like no accountability to someone like Branham, but I think he might actually enjoy someone like Branham who's a little bit of a wild card, if you will, as a, as a, as a creator, you know, out of the pick and roll. I think he's really fun. I think he's super polished as a mid range score. You know, he can get to his spots. He's not super explosive. He doesn't have a ton of like a great first step. He doesn't have a, you know, much lift in the paint, but I just think he's one of those players that plays at his own pace, really methodical. And I love, I love Malachi Branham. I had him 17th on my big board. So when the Spurs got him 20th, I thought that's tremendous value. So I, I hope that pop loves him as much as I do. Cause I really want to see him playing from day one. I just don't want to see him, you know, sitting on the bench. I, I really want to see what he can do with the ball in his hands too, because I think they're just, again, there's not a lot of guys on this team who are going to absolutely command, you know, those on ball reps, you know, or at least the majority of them. So I want to see him get a, a sliver of the pie. I want to see him get some of that pie. Is there like a boomer bust element to him? And there was even that on draft night because some people had him like mocked like comfortably in the lottery at one point and then he slips and it feels like there were just questions about like his shot selection decision making or whether his creation would actually translate and it sounds like you're a believer that it will be able to not asking you to predict superstardom but it sounds like you're a believer <laughs> that it can translate to the NBA. Yeah, I'm a little skeptical of Malachi Branham. I, I think some of my peers who do really deep dives into the draft, they had him in the lottery as you mentioned. But for me, one of the things that really kind of gave me cause for pause was his defense. I'm not so much worried about his shot selection. He was really efficient. You know, sometimes he took some ill-advised shots, but he's really efficient, good spot-up shooter. But it's the defense that kind of gets me. He has some bad habits, stands upright. You know, he he's not a great athlete, and he has this tendency to get really, really close, like no space between him and his man. And guys blew by him on the perimeter all season. One of the games that you can see, if you go back and watch the Nebraska game with Bryce McGowan's, I mean, it was barbecue chicken every time. I mean, he just got past him again and again and again. And he's a guy who he ball watches, misses rotations, uh, didn't always communicate on switches. So for me, if you're not going to be, I mean, he's pretty much a net negative at this point. And with his tools, regardless of, you know, a 6'10 wingspan, I think you're the most you can ask of him is to be a net neutral on defense. And so can his offense come to a point where he's making up for those defensive deficiencies or can he become that net neutral on defense? That's where I worry, because if you can score a little bit, if you can play, make a little bit out of the pick and roll, great. But if you're a terrible defender, you're going to get played off the floor in the playoffs. Like that's just going to happen. So I kind of look at it through that lens. Can he be on the floor in the playoffs? And right now the answer is no, but it doesn't matter. The Spurs are not, not going to be in the playoffs next season. So we'll Man, see where he goes from there. If the Spurs make it to the playoffs next season, <laughs> I need to know what happened with them and the rest of the Western Conference. <laughs> Uh, do you have any like strong thoughts on Blake Wesley, who I think, unless I'm putting words in your mouth, so you sort of mentioned is the odd man out here, which would make sense because it feels like there's some overlap um, with both his game and issues when it comes to Malachi Branham. And you also have all these other, the Spurs were sort of leaning into at one point. We talked about how they years ago, oh, the Spurs need more wings. And now they're like, they can run out positionless lineups at this point. Uh, but it's just like you have between having Trey, between having Devin Vassell, Josh Primo, uh, Malachi Branham, it's just 
it does feel like he would be the odd man out, but do you have any strong thoughts on his game and how that'll translate to uh, this level? It's kind of funny. I think he's somewhat com- comparable to a guy like DeJounte Murray coming out of the University of Washington. Not super efficient, you know, really blindingly quick first step, can get to the rim, but doesn't finish well at the rim. Showed some playmaking flashes out of the pick and roll, can make some of these. I don't know if you would call it a hammer pass because that's more of a set, but those baseline drift passes where you know you're driving, go baseline one hand to the opposite, you know, either opposite corner. You can do live dribble passes like that. Now it wasn't like every play, but the playmaking flashes are there. The ability to get to his spots in the mid-range are there. He's just been really inefficient at Notre Dame. And I think that's what worries me. The number one thing that worries me was he only finished 41.4% of his shots at the rim at Notre Dame. Like that's unacceptable. Like I hate Whoa. to use that word, but that's awful. That's really bad, but and he's Jakob really skinny. At the free throw line during crunch time. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not good. So I, I like him. I think he has similar tools to DeJounte Murray, long, lanky, explosive, at, at least in terms of first steps. So I think I'd like to see where he is in a few years, but he, to me, out of all of these guys, he's probably the most boom or bust. Cause if he doesn't really figure out the shot, if he can never be efficient, and if he doesn't kind of rein things in a little bit on the defensive end so that he can use his, a tool, his tools and maximize those tools, I could see him being a guy who's just not in the league in you know, two wow. or three years. But if he does hit that upside, I think he could be a guy who probably not an all-star, but a, a strong, you know, maybe secondary tertiary creator, a guy who can real value to your team. So we'll see with him. But out of all of those guys, he was the pick that I was probably most iffy on. He was still higher on my big board than the actual pick, so it's good value. But I also had guys like Nikola Jovic who were still there higher on my big board. So I would be lying if I if I told you I wouldn't have preferred them to go maybe that route. But I'm excited for him nonetheless. I'm excited to see what he can do, especially because I think he'll probably be in Austin. That's interesting that you feel that way about him being boomer bust because normally, and based off the very minimal footage that I've seen of him, so I'm just made that clear, people who can pass off the bounce like he can almost feel like safer bets because if they're going to be able to get rid of the ball at a, at a high level or in this sort of creative way, even if they can't, like they're not a super valuable scorer or finisher, it feels like they can stick. But I guess like you're that concerned about what is this like guy's scoring forte going to be in this league? Yeah, I think it just it just worries me because if you don't have any like off-ball equity, like we saw him knock down shots off his screens and off movement and stand still, but it wasn't super efficient. You know, it was below, I think it was below like 30% from three, 62.6% from the line, really bad at the rim. Like, I just wonder what his role on offense is then. You know, he's not a great cutter. He's not a good finisher, not super efficient. He's a good passer. I think he has good court vision. He reads the floor well, but it doesn't always make the right decision. So like if that guy is out there, how often, like how long can you leave him out there? Cause like, if he doesn't have the ball and like he's best with the ball in his hands, what does he provide you off ball? Like if he can't shoot and he's not a good cutter and he's not a good finisher, like that's, that's the questions that I have with him. Like, can he get better in those areas? For sure. I mean, he's going to work with chip England, one of the best shooting coaches in, in the NBA. He's going to have plenty of time to beef up, add some muscle to his frame and that helped DeJounte Murray. You know, DeJounte is still very skinny, but he added that lean muscle, was able to absorb con- contact. I think his rookie season only finished like 50% of his shot at the rim. Last year, it was just 64% of the half court. So, like, there is a pathway for him to become a good player. I just think you're betting on a lot to happen for it to be, like, a sure thing. And, like, again, like, no no guy is a sure thing. And for me, he's the biggest boomer bust. So we'll see with him. I'm sort of, the jury is out, but I like him. I think he has the tools to be a good player 
down the road. Probably not right away, though. That's also in part why I was excited about the Soen pick is knowing that he would get the chance to work with Chip England. I think a lot of people thought Soen would be good in uh, New Orleans because they have Fred Vincent there. But yeah. like Chip England is <laughs> like those, those are like two of the guys of the three or four in the league where it's like if you're going to know the names of just like these assistant or like these specialized coaches like it's them. And so you get excited about younger guys working with them. I am all for them taking a conservative approach with Blake Wesley because I would love for them to turn Josh Primo loose next season. Uh, is that going to happen? At, uh, so much can change. We are very early in the offseason, and the transaction game is not done. But if you had to guess right now, do you think that we're going to see like real extended, consistent run for him? I think so. You know, last year they started him in that playing game. They didn't have to. Nobody was hurt. You know, they could have gone with Lonnie Walker. They could have gone a number of different routes. But Greg Popovich went with Josh Primo. And I know a lot of Spurs fans were like, oh, you know, he hardly played. But Josh Primo played in 53 games. And it's not like he, you know, was playing 20 minutes per game or anything like that. And a lot of those games ended up being, you know, blowout or, right. the, you know, the game's all but decided. You know, they're just going to throw him in there for, for the last couple of minutes. But I can see him getting minutes because I truly believe he's one of the only guys on this roster who can consistently create advantages for himself and others off the dribble. Like, I just, I don't see that from Keldon. I don't really see that from Devin consistently. I like Trey Jones. I think he's a steady hand and we'll talk about him later probably. But I think out of all the guys, you took him in the lottery. He's one of the youngest guys on your team. He can create kind of something out of nothing in a way that other guys can't. I would expect him to get that kind of opportunity. Now, will he start? Maybe, maybe not, but he should at the bare minimum to me, he should be getting like 40, 50 touches and he should be in the game at least 22, 23, 24 minutes per game. There's just no reason for him to be, you know, sitting on the bench during a rebuild. There's just no reason for that. And I expect the Spurs, like Pop is a smart guy. The Spurs are smart people. Like they'll, they'll, they'll figure out how to utilize him, but I'm excited to see what he can do. He wasn't efficient but he did have some really high-end flashes, and that's what I'm excited for. Can he turn those flashes into more consistent production? That's what I'm excited for. I really want to see him out there and just give him the green light because he's fun. He's a lot of fun. I'm in love with him. And look, to this person's credit, post-White trade, he definitely was playing from games that I watched and when I was working on something going back. He played some like higher leverage minutes. I like just want to see him have full control, like carte blanche <laughs> over the offense next season. There's like a... in anarchic shiftiness to his game, but it's also under control a little bit. And I just throw, I tend to throw efficiency for the first two years of a player career out the window, unless it's higher than expected. Then I'm just go gaga over them, which is <laughs> uh, maybe inconsistent thought, but I'm going to skew towards more optimistic when they're that young. I really want to see him have that type of license. Is there anything that you noticed about him that you really liked or what you want to see him aside from the overall efficiency improve upon going into to year two? Yeah, one of the things that I'm actually really excited to see is the progress that he's made coming out of the summer, being able to work out, because he's talked to to the media, or at least local media, about Shea Gilgis-Alexander sort of being a mentor for him and being a player he aspires to be like. And that shiftiness you're talking about, sort of, it's funky, it's out of control, but somehow it's also, like, not too wide. By design? Like, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's hard to, like, describe it, but it does have some shades of Shea Gilgis-Alexander I like that. I don't, you know, he's not as big. He's not as long. I don't think he's as good of a playmaker, but I'd like to see what he can do just with a green light. I think out of all the guys on this roster too, he's probably the guy who's best at creating his shot from beyond the arc. Like he can pull up from beyond the arc off the dribble. He can make you pay for going under a screen. Teams dared DeJounte Murray to shoot. You know, they, they did. They didn't care if he shot. 
I think the same case could be said with like a Keldon Johnson who rarely took shots off the dribble from three. Lonnie Walker did so, but super inefficiently. Like, I just want to see what this guy can do with just the freedom to do whatever he wants. Like, I don't care if he turns the ball over. I don't care if he dribbles it off his foot. Like, the Spurs should just be invested in getting whatever they can out of this guy. I think he's exciting. I think he's fun. And then defensively, a whole lot better than I thought he was going to be. Like, some team defensive concepts, he got lost. I, I get it. He's 19 years old. He was the youngest guy in the league. I'm not going to judge him too harshly for that. But he had some real high-end flashes as a secondary rim protector. And as a guy who really, I thought, read the passing lanes pretty well. Like, I'm excited for him. I, I don't know how else I can say it other than just ready to see him have control of the offense. Even if it's not pretty, I think it'll be fun. And I think he'll be better for it in the long run, just being able to experiment without any consequences. I also just think that he's going to end up being a better like playmaking decision maker, even if these are not, I mean, you sort of mentioned it with DeJounte Murray. I think he's going to be a better passer than DeJounte Murray, but even if it's not these fancy passes that I think people look for as a barometer for whether they're a talented playmaker, I think he's just going to be like a really smart passer. Um, and I'm interested to see what happens if they give him more control over the offense in a setting where things slow down. And part of the, look, part of the reason I was in love with the Spurs this past year completely out of character for them. They had the the quickest average offensive possession time in the league, like not even pace, just looking at their average offensive possession. They were number one or two, I think it was. Um, and I think he's a fit for that. But I think as he like gets older and more experienced, I think he's going to be able to really exploit some of the slowed down situations. And so he is, I think I'm still highest on Devin Vassell of anyone on this roster, but right now, and this probably more so speaks to my ignorance of Jeremy Sowen, um, or some of the other guys on that, like uh, Malachi Branham, I'm like the second highest on Josh Primo. And it might be to the point where if you told me by February, I'm driving the Josh Primo is the Spurs' most important player of the future <laughs> bandwagon. Like I wouldn't, or even just a passenger on it, because let's put actual Spurs people on it first. I could envision myself boarding that, boarding that bandwagon. Yeah, I think, I think he could end up being the most important player for the Spurs because I think he does have real two-way upside. And I think he also, again, is one of the only guys on this team who has real on-ball equity as an advantage creator. Like, I, I don't mean to sell the other players short, but he's the only guy who showed, you know, flashes are just flashes, but they were pretty consistent flashes. And so I'm excited to see what he can do in that role. Really young. And I think, like, people probably thought he was really small just because he has that baby face, but he actually has a really good frame. Like, he, he added a lot of muscle throughout the year. I just want to see what he can do. Like, I think you're right. He probably could be like the second or first most important player on this team. And I wouldn't be surprised if like everybody's on that bandwagon by the end of the year. And also just really, really pumped to see him in summer league because I think he's going to get to do whatever he wants. And that like that for me, that's the most ideal situation is just getting to see him do whatever he wants. So I'm you, super pumped for that. You will not hear a peep out of me if he plays poorly in summer league, but if he looks too good to be <laughs> in summer league, I will be among the loudest people talking about it. Uh, this so Trey Jones became a super interesting player for me because I was watching a subset of Spurs games at one point, like during the latter third of the season. And I put a line in a larger piece that I was writing about every single team, just about Trey Jones's in between game, mid range efficiency during that stretch, and his pocket passing. Just I considered a throwaway, it was under 40 words, and there were comments that were specifically happy about <laughs> that in the Bleacher Report app. Someone DM'd me about it. Is Trey Jones the NBA's best kept secret outside <laughs> of San Antonio? Because I know Spurs fans really like him, but I have never had 
like, or maybe I'm just not hunting enough in the comments because I tend not to read them. I just thought I wrote so much about other like Devin Vassell, Kelton Johnson, DeJounte Murray, but it was the Trey Jones thing that people latched onto. Yeah, Spurs fans are like, you're either you love Trey Jones or you hate Trey Jones. There were a lot of fans who were like, oh, he shouldn't be playing. He's too small. They like kind of scapegoated him for some of the late losses in the season. You know, oh, he wasn't he wasn't able to replace DeJounte Murray to oh, yeah, DeJounte Murray's an all-star, and this guy's probably a career backup. Other people really loved him. I'm in I'm in that group. I really love Trey Jones. I still think he is probably a career backup, but I brought a few just kind of fun numbers to talk about when it comes to Trey Jones. Like last year, he only started 11 games, but he averaged 13 and a half points, 4.6 rebounds, seven and a half assists, and just one turnover on 48.8% shooting. Like that's probably, you know, not something that he can do every single night, but he looked good in those spot starts. He was also second in the NBA only to his brother, Tyus and, assist to turnover ratio like when I look at Trey Jones I think he's sort of the perfect fit for the Spurs going into a rebuild like we talk about how rebuilding teams it's good to have young players and young assets but you need a few like steady hands and veteran presences on the team and while he's not really a veteran because he's only what like 22 23 years old he is that guy that I can see just sort of being the floor general the the uh the game manager if you will if you want to talk about it in quarterback terms of an offense just keeps things moving along you know not going to really wow you very often but really just level head on him i think he's a guy who they should hang on to but you know i know other people don't love him but for me trey jones is a guy who they should start to begin the season and that way you don't really have to pressure josh primo to be that guy from the very beginning sort of ease primo into that primary role ease him into whatever you think he's going to be and let Trey Jones build his value. Like maybe you want to trade him. Maybe you think he's worth re-signing. But I think Trey Jones is one of those guys who, unless you're talking to me or a Spurs fan, people probably don't care about him or don't realize how productive he was for San Antonio last year. I am like surprised that he's polarizing in a bad way amongst spans because even if you don't love his game, like he doesn't play a style where it feels like if it goes poorly that you should be that incensed by it so i had no idea that he was sort of just like this point of division within the spurs fan base yeah, spurs fans kind of needed someone to scapegoat every year like for the last couple of years it was Brent forbes and then when they oh, moved man. on from Brent forbes it was doug mcdermott for a little while because he wasn't playing good enough defense for them and like that's fair he wasn't a very good defender last year and then once doug mcdermott got sat you know it, it, they were done you know he sprained his ankle they sat him for the rest of the season the attention sort of shifted towards trey jones because he ended up playing a lot of minutes next to DeJounte Murray, which is kind of a funky pairing. You know, they're both not very good shooters. They're both best with the ball in their hands. He wasn't always that valuable as, you know, like an off-ball player. Like, I understand there were some frustrations there. And then, you know, again, when, when DJ was out with COVID for a little bit, he started in place. The Spurs lost quite a few games with him as a starter. And fans were really, like, there was a large contingent of fans who were gung-ho about they need to make the plan. Like they have to make the plan. And so every loss when he was starting was like, well, we know whose fault it was, you know, who was the starting point guard, who was running the offense. So like, I think that's what the, where the division came with Trey Jones. But I think if you had him on any other team, he wouldn't be quite so divisive. Like, I don't think he's as important as some fans made him out to be, but I love him. I absolutely love Trey Jones. I wrote a like 1200, 1400 word article about him. Why, the Spurs should really just be, you know, married to him as their backup. That was when DeShante was here. We'll see what they do with him, but I think he's a fantastic player and great value. 41st overall pick. I had a first round grade on him that year. 
Oh, okay. I was ecstatic when they took him with the 41st overall pick. I was like, wow, they just got a steal. And I think they thought so as well. I mean, they gave him, well, I think like a three-year, $4.1 million contract as a you know second rounder. Like that's not that common. So I'm, I'm happy with Trey. We'll see where he goes though. He could be gone. He could be here for the long haul. Who knows? And look, even if you don't think that the Spurs currently have, and I think the majority of people probably don't believe that the next Spurs superstar is on the roster right now, which is fine because you could say that about the odds are in your favor of being right. That's just how mega stardom <laughs> works. Uh, they just have so many intriguing, even throw away the rookies. Like before we got to this point, they just so many intriguing, like younger guys or bigger picture guys that could be really good, even if they're not great NBA players. Again, that is like, I'm not talking about the draft. I'm not that they had this year. I'm not even talking about the future picks that they have coming their way now. That's just looking at the Devin Vassell, Keldon Johnson, Trey Jones, Josh Primo. There's just so much like intrigue on this roster. Yeah, I think that the Spurs, even if they're not set up to contend, you have these players who you could see being part of contention, like not as the fulcrum, not as like the number one or maybe even number two guy, but just guys who could contribute to winning. And I think that's what really intrigues me the most is maybe San Antonio doesn't have that superstar. I'm also of the mindset they probably don't have that guy on the roster, but they have a lot of good young pieces. And I think that's the place you want to be in. Like whether you trade those guys for a superstar, or you have the picks to trade to add a superstar to that core at some point. So I, I just really like what the Spurs have going on. And I think more so than anything, I'm really, and, and they made, this may kind of come off as, as bad, but I'm more so just relieved than anything that they really stuck to a definitive direction, that they weren't really yeah. like happy to be in that gray area of we're a playing team, we're a lottery team. We're not good enough to compete for something important. We're not bad enough to, you know, get a top five pick or four pick or whatever. So I'm just happy that it seems like they've picked a real hard direction. And for me, that just makes the season easier to cover. Like there's not going to be this weight in my mind that, you know, what are they doing? Is this the right decision? Are Spurs fans fighting in the comments like all day long? Like there's just generally been less hostility in the comment section on Twitter like, it seems like everybody's sort of on board for a rebuild, even if it means a lot of losses, because you already understood that that's what's going to happen heading into the season. So I'm excited for this next era of Spurs basketball. And look, that shit matters. I know people think it's lazy analysis when you say teams need to choose a direction. The Kings have been <laughs> wallowing in the wilderness for like 80 decades at this point. Even if there's more to running an NBA team than actually winning and contending for titles there needs to be like a rhyme or reason to what you're doing. And it's why I've been so critical of the Knicks, or even if you like some of their independent moves or don't think anything's been damaging, they're constantly like zigging and zagging and short-circuiting their, their own decisions. It's very confusing. And the worst place to be in the NBA, whether you, the end game, yeah, when it's the Hornets, Michael Jordan just wants his two games worth of playoff gate <laughs> revenue. Like we get it. Uh, but there's, even if the end game isn't to make it to the finals, like being in the middle is legitimately the worst place to be in the NBA. And the Spurs were just there. And yeah, if you threw them in the Eastern conference, they might've been like a little bit. Um, I mean, the East was a lot deeper this year, but like some of the teams that were there, yeah, they might've been a little bit higher. So they're in the West where there's a lot more like it top end teams, I guess you could say if, if there's, especially if the nuggets and the Clippers are going to be healthy, choosing a direction matters and it's it's clarifying for not just the fans but for the organization and it allows you to do things and make decisions um and take swings and that's why i was a big fan of like yeah i love dejounte murray i might even it sounds like i might have even been higher on him than you were but i was also <laughs> of the mind that like 
unless you're going to go out and get the guy who can be above DeJounte Murray, and you weren't going to, in all likelihood, we've seen the Spurs mine gems from the draft before, you weren't drafting in the territory where those guys typically fall. And so that's why I appreciated the decision that that they made. Absolutely. No, I, I looked at, you know, there were people who said, hey, they, they should go after DeAndre Aiden or they should go after Zach Levine. And I think both of those guys are great. But when you're trying to compete for something real, like you really want to go deep in the playoffs, it's probably not in your best interest to just have two like second tier or third tier stars. Like you need a superstar. And DeAndre Aiden would have been great next to DeJounte Murray, but that team's not going anywhere. Same thing with Zach Levine. Like Zach Levine was the perfect player next to DeMar DeRozan because he's so good off ball and he can also create for himself in, in stretches where DeMar is sitting or maybe he wants to defer. I think the same thing could be said for like, he's the perfect complimentary player to a DeJounte Murray. But like for the money you were going to have to pay to get him, it wouldn't have been worth it. And then you would have had to pay DeJounte in two years. So like mm-hmm. you would have had two guys taking up, if I have this correct, almost 65% of your cap and two guys who are not superstars. So I just, I think the Spurs made the right decision. And I know I probably was not as high on DeJounte as some Spurs fans or even some other analysts, but I just think there was a long way for him to go before you could look in the mirror and say, yeah, this guy is the best player on a championship team. And like, there was probably a long way to go before they had a route to getting a guy like that to add next to him. So the right decision, it hurts a little bit because I love DeJounte Murray. I was really happy just to see his progression from this guy who was overlooked to a guy who overcame an ACL injury, got better, you know, incrementally every single year until he became an all-star. It sucks to lose a guy like that, but it also sucks to watch a team be in this weird purgatory area where, you know, they're not going anywhere. So I'm excited to see what the Spurs can do with a rebuild. Like they haven't done this since I've been alive pretty much. So I'm just excited to see something new. Um, I was all for the Zach Levine pursuit, like when DeJounte Murray tweeted and deleted him in a Spurs jersey. I think in part because it was at the point where if you were going to stick with DeJounte Murray, like it had to be a move like that where you were acquiring a big free agent via sign and trade. I do think your point is valid where if Zach Levine is your 1A on offense all of a sudden, how good is that team even if you're surrounding him with the perfect complementary talent? I would have still been much higher on that than I do not understand. Even people, mostly, I think it's nationally, are talking about, oh, well, the Jazz should go after eight now, or the Spurs should still. If you didn't want to pay DeJounte Murray 30-plus million eventually, and if the if the Jazz already had Rudy Gobert and didn't want to pay him, like DeAndre Ayton plus more first-round picks is not really getting you like that much further. And I think DeAndre Ayton is really good. There's just the jury's out on his self-creation. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on all of that. When you do look at this roster, though, whether you want to frame it as, well, if they were to acquire one type of player – still for the rest of the offseason or just even moving forward, what do you think just like the biggest need or, or void is for them right now? Yeah, I know this is probably going to be a cop-out answer a little bit, but I still think they just need like that high-end foundational cornerstone piece. Like you're not really building anything until you have that. And like the Spurs can build towards that in a way by losing this year and getting other guys experience and getting them more on-ball reps and getting them comfortable in different roles and just kind of seeing what they have in guys. But until you really have that like cornerstone, like you you get your, I don't know, we'll just throw names out there, like a Luka Doncic or a LaMelo Ball or a, you know, John Moran. Until you have one of those guys. Yeah, I yeah, it. I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like you're not really going anywhere. So I just look at this draft class that's coming up as like, that's probably your best avenue towards finding that guy. Like 
I do draft stuff for pounding the rock every single year. And so I'm already starting to do draft stuff for next season. And just from my point of view right now, probably like the top five, six, six ish guys in this 2023 class probably could have contended for, you know, top three pick in this class and arguably like the top three or four guys could have gone number one over Paolo. So we'll see where they end up. I mean, like nothing set in stone, but if the Spurs are really committing to this rebuild and they want to find that superstar player, you don't necessarily have to, you know, be bad and then, oh, it's it's a disappointment you don't get the first pick. You may still be able to find that guy with like the fourth pick. So I'm excited for that. I think that's their best avenue towards finding that missing piece. And after that, we talked about it. I mean, they have some really intriguing players, you know, from Devin Vassell to Trey Jones to, um, you know, Josh Primo to Jeremy Sohan. Like they have some good complimentary pieces. And if they decide to hold on to Yaka Pertle and Josh Richardson and they end up landing this like kind of foundational guy. Like you could be building towards something pretty quickly. And I know like quick fixes are not realistic, but if Spurs want to hold on to optimism there, that's an optimistic point of view, I guess. I agree with everything you said. If they were to make or circle a need right now that they wanted to address like during the season or leading into the season, it'd be cool. I don't even know if cool is the word, but like to have like more of a, a mobile or explosive five on the roster than a Yako Pirtle or Gorgie Jang is like your primary bigs right now and maybe look bigs are just traded all over the place if they're not stars all of a sudden maybe that's like the type of player you're <laughs> acquiring as part of like that kevin durant trade where it's like a, it's a role-playing big but like just to sort of balance out the roster give them a different look i'm like i said i'm endlessly fascinated with this team i do say that about every team but after that dejounte <laughs> murray move like the idea of the spurs like really rebuilding for the first time since um tim duncan like that's just I it really hasn't happened in my lifetime. I don't I'm not old enough yet to remember when they even drafted Tim Duncan, basically. So just that's <laughs> that's incredible to me. Um, two quick questions before we get you out of here. Uh, our Victor Wombanyama jer- jersey is going to be all over the uh, AT&T Center <laughs> this year. I would love to see that. I think Spurs fans are already like really in on Victor Wimbanyama, like potentially being their guy if they get the number one pick. There's also a ridiculous hashtag going on spurs twitter right now i think it's like hashtag wanking for Wimbenyama. they really want him that bad like it's a terrible yeah. hashtag it's awful but like it's all over spurs twitter right now so like i i would love to see some of those jerseys there i know he's no longer with tony parker's team he just signed with i forget the name of the team but he was with tony parker's team that he owns over in france this past season so Spurs fans are already putting on their like tinfoil hats and they think it's like a done deal you know they're gonna have it twisted or manipulated in a way that he's directed to the Spurs. But like, yeah, it would be cool to see Wimbenyama jerseys at the Spurs at the AT&T center this year. Yeah. It's like, so the Spurs will get one of the top four picks and then he'll tank his workout with every single other team that isn't the Spurs <laughs> because Tony Parker planted that seed a while back. Is there anything about this roster, this team, this franchise's future? I did not ask you about that you think needs to be discussed. You know, not really. I feel like we, we touched pretty much, on every single base. We didn't talk a whole lot about Yaka Pertle and I love giving him some some shine, but honestly, like just again, excited to see what they do in a real rebuild. Like even with the Tim Duncan rebuild, it was like a one-year thing. You know, like a bunch of guys got injured, they get lucked into the number one overall pick. But before that, it was like David Robinson and the Spurs were like 55, 56 wins for like a decade. So like this is really new for not just like me or you, but probably Spurs fans who are even in their like 40s right now. Like, this is really new for everyone. And I, th- I think just new should be exciting. 
And Spurs fans, just knowing it's a rebuild, it's going to be a lot easier to kind of swallow the pill of losses, you know, taking a bunch of losses. Because the losses will come at the expense of development. And I think development is just the best thing that that could come out of this season. And that in, in like a, a number one overall pick. That would be great too. You know, speaking of Pirtle really quickly though, I have thought like whether, I don't know if he would sign it just because it's, it would depend on what the league's average annual salary is. But if like 120% raise is actually going to be larger than that, an extension for him would look like somewhere starting between 11 plus and $12 million. That's like not an egregious number for him to say, if I could get long-term money. And then if you're the Spurs and you did extend him, that becomes, he's not someone who ruins like the development of anybody that's already on your roster. And then it becomes like this major trade asset for you. So I've just been curious as to whether I'm sure it's probably been offered or broached like internally. Uh, but I've wondered if he would accept an extension. And if he doesn't like at that point, are you keeping him into free agency? I would say, I, I, I would normally say no, but just watching the big man market this summer where Kavon Looney got about as much guaranteed money as JaVale McGee um, or about as much guaranteed money over three years on a three-year deal as Mo Bamba got in a two-year deal from the Magic, you could just be like, well, we'll let it play in and we could probably match whatever and the contract will still be fine. I don't, he clearly to me doesn't seem like he fits long-term into the team, but I could also see him still being around for like quite a while. I do know that there will be quite a few teams and fan bases who will be pretty peeved if the Spurs do hang on to Jakob Pertl, though. Yeah, I know. That's the thing is I'd love to see him long-term because I think he is just such an underrated asset. Like, there's a lot that's made about, oh, you know, he's not a lob threat. He doesn't dunk very often. But he still finished like 70% of his shots at the rim, was one of the best rim protectors in the NBA, contested the most shots per game in the league. Like, really good screener, really good short roll passer. Like, can hold his own on the perimeter to an extent. Like he had some really good possessions against Trey Jones or Trey Young last season. Like I would love to see him here, but just thinking about it for like his career, I think it probably makes sense to just try to get into a situation where, you know, he's contending or competing for something. Just do right by him. Cause it does feel again, like I know it's kind of a cop out. It's probably lame, but it seemed like the Spurs do that pretty much with Every single guy who they know, they're just not going to utilize. They're not going to hold them hostage. They're not going to keep them here. They're not going to make them play on a team that isn't with, like in line with their goals. Like, I really do expect him to be gone, but I would love to see him come back. I've really become like one of the the number one Jakob Pertl supporters probably among the fan base and writers, but it's probably the right thing to try to get like a first rounder or two out of him because I think he is really valuable. I think he could start on chip team. You yeah, just saw Kev, Kevon Looney do that. Like, right. And it would be so much better. And you're absolutely getting at least a first for him, even with it being an expiring contract. I would just like, if they did move Jakob Pertle before the season, what is your big man? Like is Gorgie Jang and Zach Collins is like, <laughs> let's, let's blaze on. <laughs> yeah. That, and that is the tough thing. It's like Gorgie Jang is really just here as like a, a veteran mentor in depth insurance option. And I like Zach Collins. I just don't think he's a starter in the NBA. So if those are your guys, like it even further signals that, hey, like we're in a rebuild and we're not afraid to let anybody know it. I think that Jakob Pertl kind of good for the development because I think he is just such a steadying presence. But if you can get a first round rounder out of him, Charlotte offered allegedly last year a first rounder and Kai Jones and the Spurs said no because they wanted two first rounders. Well, like if they can get that out of him, I think that's good value. We'll see what they can get out of him. He is a good player. I think he deserves to compete for something meaningful. He is not old or anything. He's like basically the same age as me. But once you start creeping towards 30 in the NBA, especially as like a, 
you know, a big man. Like I, I think you got to take into account where he wants to be in his career. So wouldn't be surprised if he's gone by the end of the season. There's something to be said about streamlining the development with someone who can cover up at the rim for a lot of defensive miscues of the youngsters. And then just like, he's going to make life easier on um, the more inexperienced ball handlers or someone like Keldon Johnson, who is going to get more ball handling responsibility just with his screening and the reliability there. And like, is he the most veteran player on this team right now? I don't, I didn't even like consider that. I mean, there's Doug McDermott and Josh Richardson and then it's, there's him. And like, I don't know if he's considered like the super vocal rah, rah leader, but there's something to be said about still having that, that guy, both on the court, like on the court, at least with just the, the reliability that you're not going to get, even in some of your other players who are better, just because there's higher variance right now, caked into their performance and development. Yeah, I think he would provide some value there. And he's also, again, I think he's like close to my age. I think he's going to be 27 in the middle of the season, as will I, which is <laughs> an interesting thought for myself. I feel like I'm getting closer to 30 every year. But anyways, uh, yeah, I mean, like he is a guy who I think can streamline, as you mentioned, like a little bit of development for them. I don't know that he's super vocal, like just watching him on the court. He does communicate, but I don't really see him as like the guy in the huddle who's really taking charge. Like the guys who come to mind are you know, DeJounte Murray, who's no longer here. And also uh, Josh Richardson, super vocal, really good leader, great presence in the locker room, really got along with the young guys, did not complain once about his role, about his touches, about, yeah. you know, sitting on the bench when he first got here. He got a bunch of DNPs. Like the Spurs really hadn't decided if they were going to utilize him or not. So like just having a guy like that, I think is important. I don't know if Jakob is quite, you know, the the vocal leader like that, but I think he would be, useful for the rebuild even if like you know he's probably better suited elsewhere at least if you're trying to do right by him no this was fantastic you're able to tell our listeners where they can follow you and all the great work that you do yeah thank you again for having me i had a blast talking spurs basketball with you you can find me at n underscore magaro m-a-g-a-r-o on twitter you can find my stuff under my name no magaro george on youtube i do film breakdowns i do some breaking news breakdown stuff there as well and then you can find my writing at pounding the rock and also the podcast alamo city limits pretty much wherever you get your podcast so again thank you for having me had a lot of fun and i hope i you know talk to your listeners a little bit about the sports uh i learned a whole lot i'm sure they learned a whole lot and rest assured i'll be pestering you again in the future so thanks <laughs> so much for coming on and uh have a blast at summer league